0: In this episode, Jake and I have a lovely conversation about all things infinite banking. Hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I have in the illustrious studio, my youngest son, Jake Nethery, with us today. Jake, how in the world are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Of course, the illustrious studio is like right next door to his office.
1: (laughs) My office is literally on the other side of that wall.
0: Um, so it's been a minute since uh Jake and I have sat down and, and done a recording, so we're uh sitting down and having a recording, yeah. All right, so how's it been going? So, you know, I mean, all of our clients know who you are, they they all have uh spoken to you and speak with you regularly. Um, yeah, some of the listeners may not, you know, know what you look like.
1: I look like this. <laughs>
0: And so Jake, yeah, you know he he uh, is not only an illustration ninja, but he's an IBC uh, Infinite Banking Concepts coach. And uh, anyway, so what's going on? Anything exciting happened over the last several weeks? Or
1: I, I mean, yeah, there's I, I don't know what what I would say. Um, there's been a lot of good movement with our clients. Um, I, I've seen like. <sighs> a lot has come in recently. So when, when we're looking at like illustrations and things like that, that I've seen, um, a lot of good things, uh, I guess is, is what I'm seeing out there. Um, I'm seeing,
0: well, what do you mean by like educated consumers? Yes. Good questions. Yes. Yes. Like genuine willingness to learn or they've learned yeah. and they're ready to apply. What do you mean?
1: Yeah. So I'm seeing a lot of good things. Just, uh, what would you say? Um, just across the board, I see a lot of educated clients um, and the questions that do come in from our clients and from the you know listeners of Bank With Life podcast are usually really good questions. Um, they're legitimate questions that have, I would just say some thoughts, you know, there's been some thought put behind them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I kind of wanted to talk today is just kind of, you know, clarifying maybe some of the most you know frequently asked questions that I see a lot of. Um, one of the things I think would be really helpful for, I guess, you and I to talk about here today, is probably that page fifty-eight, just that you know,
0: bottom page you know, fifty-eight, becoming your own, becoming banker. your
1: own banker. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fifth sure. edition. So on that page, you're going to see it's the additional information or the additional interest page where Nelson's talking about what the actual additional interest is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when it comes to the infinite banking concept, that may be um, a spot that there's not a lot of clarity from. You know a lot of the other agents out there maybe they use that purposely to you know not clarify things
0: yeah and i don't know if they you know do it on purpose or not or i don't know why people do what they do but just a very good point so the additional interest and and it comes up continually i think our our clients i think most of our clients long-time listeners you know i think that we've covered this uh you know adequately in the past but mm-hmm. uh it continues to confuse the, the new uninitiated person, right?
1: Absolutely. And,
0: and so the additional interest that Nelson is pointing out on page 58, you want to quote it?
1: Yeah. Uh, of course, always have my BYOB handy. So specifically on that page, Nelson says, actually, this interest is not really interest. It is additional premium capital that has been paid into the policy that equals the interest that was being paid to the finance company. That is the reason it is adding to the cost basis of the policy. If you have trouble understanding this, go back to the grocery store on page fifteen. He says if you don't understand, then contact me. So you know, contact us.
0: Uh, but but you know, it's... Nelson would have answered the phone. You know, <laughs> when when he was here, he did. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the additional interest. When we, I think it's important to to uh, continually. Uh, bring that up and remember, because in speech, even in speech when we're talking, well, my policy is getting better because I'm using it. Well, what does that mean? Right? Yeah, exactly. So the policies are not more efficient or they do not get better because you borrow against them. They get better because you pay, quote unquote, additional interest. So if I'm borrowing from the life insurance company at 5%, let's mm-hmm. say. And I'm paying off a credit card that was at, oh, I don't know, 28% interest. If I'm going to be honest banker, I'm going to put that percentage differential between the five and the 28 to my policy. Yes. And so I'm calling it interest, right? That's what it was when you're paying it to the credit card company or whatever other third-party lender. So if I'm honest banker, and I should be, then that additional interest, that additional 23% I'm calling interest. We call interest on the deal, but it is premium to the life insurance company
1: in the form of a paid-up additions rider. More often than not, as well, absolutely. And a lot of people, I've gotten this actually kind of recently too. And you know, some sometimes this is kind of basic for folks, but PUA, PUA, and paid-up addition are the same thing. So a PUA is a paid-up addition. So I, I know that that's that's you know maybe basic for a lot of folks out there
0: and that's a rider the paid up additions rider is a rider to a whole life policy yes yeah. and then too uh, let me say that it's premium to the life insurance company we're calling the interest in our deal and being an honest banker and controlling that mm-hmm. debt service right if we we're paying them a certain amount of interest we're gonna put that same equivalent into our system and your policy has to be designed to take it, or there's other methods to make sure and capture that interest. But we're calling it interest, it's premium to the life insurance company, but it is capital to your system.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: you know, and it's, it's so simple. But, um, also, page 70, I believe Nelson mentions that as well, on it, that additional interest.
1: Yeah. And when you you really break down like the additional interest and we talk about PUA's, what does a PUA do for your policy?
0: Paid up additions writer?
1: Yeah. What does a paid up addition do for your policy? It increases the cash value, the death benefit, and doing so is also going to increase the dividends each and every year. Future dividends. All future dividends will be increased. Uh, The paid up additions writer is very powerful to these policies. So I, I understand where there is confusion so when somebody says, you know, I borrow and if I'm properly doing the infinite banking concept, right, I'm borrowing, I'm repaying my loans and then I'm ad- adding additional interest in the form of a paid up additions writer to my policy. What will happen to my policy? Well, if I'm being a good banker, I'm increasing the cash. I death benefit and future dividends in every future year of my policy.
0: That's pretty powerful. And, and you know, a visual would probably help on that, but you can prove that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of speaks to the uh, the actions of the owner of the policy are going to have a greater bearing on the results than even the life insurance company. It's whether somebody actually pays that additional PUA rider. Mm-hmm. And then I think I did, a, I did a couple, I'm still working on a third. I did two kind of solo episodes on the PUA. Mm-hmm. And I think really the first two were just clips of previous released episode content talking about PUA. Um, but there's there's a lot there. It's not it's not you don't have to like get really deep esoteric or be a life insurance expert. But the PUA, the paid-up additions rider, uh, really was created, I believe, in the 70s. My best estimate is in the 70s. In conversation with individuals in the industry, as a place to receive the dividend. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so this idea of unscheduled. Pua's where you can pay Mm -hmm. a Pua premium, greater, lower, or a flexible Pua, and you know the unscheduled Pua premium where you can pay a premium to the paid up additions. I mean, I think that came out in the '80s, and it's very modified. Well, uh, compared to today.
1: Yeah, not every company has that. Like, there's some very popular companies out there. Uh, most recently, I was looking at, like, you know, State Farm and different writers they have. They don't really have a paid-up editions writer. Uh, they have one for the dividend, for it to receive the dividend, mm-hmm. but not like a separate paid-up editions writer that you can use for your policy. Which to me, uh, that's, uh, you, you'd think that would be like, oh, okay, this is basic, but you have to understand we're, we're doing something. We're doing banking, right, with these policies. This is a little bit different than maybe how most companies think about their products, right? They're thinking of things from a death benefit standpoint, not necessarily a cash value standpoint. So the paid-up additions rider is a great place to increase the cash value in a policy, and it does increase the death benefit as well. But <laughs> comparatively to the base premium or their term premium, the paid-up additions rider doesn't buy any more like death benefit than... You know any other writer or anything else else out there? And in fact, it probably buys a little bit less than you know term, it buys a lot less than term writers and buys less than the base as well. Now, wait,
0: say that again. Yeah.
1: The the PUA, yeah, like one PUA. If I paid you know one dollar of like you know dollars to PUA, yeah. that at most may increase my death benefit like by three dollars, right? But if you're paying one dollar to like the base premium of a policy, that would have a higher death benefit per thousand than just the oh than just the PUA itself. Now, PUA's over time, and you're paying lots of PUA's over time if you're, you know, doing these policies correctly, are going to dramatically increase the death benefit. Because while that's true, think about the volume of what you're actually paying in PUA premiums over a long period of time with a policy, a properly built banking policy. It dramatically increases that death benefit. Dramatically.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, You, you, no question about it. that's that's actually you know in fact true um you know the i I've come to believe that that's really the cheapest way to buy a death benefit yeah. you know you can we can buy term and you know everybody's term 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 cheap 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 but and then too you know every PUA rider with the various companies is a little bit different one company may give you three times the death benefit on a dollar premium. Mm. You know, at a particular age, the older you get, it would buy less. A dollar PUA premium at my age might only buy $2 in Mm. death benefit. And then other companies could just be dollar for dollar. And whatever they are, they are, which is not that big a deal. But if there is an increase, Mm. excuse me, there will be an increase because just like you said earlier, whenever I pay the PUA premium, the majority is going to go to cash. It's going to buy additional death benefit. But the additional dividends. Because the dividend paid to the PUA is increasing the death benefit, going straight to the cash value, increasing future dividends and death benefits. Yeah. It's over time, it it becomes dramatic. Absolutely. But, too, then, you know, there's, excuse me, there is a focus on, there seems to be, especially when someone is newly exposed to the infinite banking. Concept becoming your own banker, you know there seems to be a really heavy emphasis on having as much of the premium dollar go to the PUA as possible, yeah. and you know there should be a a, a healthy ratio, a healthy ratio for the policy to serve you well over your lifetime. Um, but it can also become unhealthy if you're trying to wait too much premium to the PUA.
1: And, you know, I don't want to you know beat up what other people are doing out there in the big wide world. But if I were to point out one thing that I see a lot of is that argument on the Internet. Like, you know, what is the right base to PUA ratio? Yeah. And I know if you asked me, if you asked you, if you asked Ryan Griggs or anybody really that. What talking about and when it comes to the subject uh, it would it'll always be like it depends right it depends on the case it
0: depends because you know well, no. jay give me a straight <laughs> answer give me a hard answer i want to find a, a definite answer well but, i mean I, if, and i'm just saying but yeah that, it, it always yeah it often goes to that what is the right ratio
1: I mean, we've built everything from, you know, 60%, you know, base premiums to, you know, uh, you know, 20% base premiums. It just depends on the case, depends on ratings, ages, uh, what you can pay in premium, all of that. So when, when somebody, and think about it this way, right? What financial product in the world has everyone said, okay, we just build it all the same way. Nothing else has to be done. No thought needs to be done. You just buy this product and it's all built the same way. Nothing has to be changed. It's like, no, of course, when you build a, you know, banking policy, you have to take, you know, more factors into, you know, consideration than just, you know, I want to get paid this or, you know, this is, you know, how much the base should be. It, like, th- there's more than that, right? If I have a young child, you know, who's you know buying maybe their first policy, their parents are buying their first policy on that young child. You may have 60% base. You may have 50% base.
0: It depends. It could be 100% base.
1: Absolutely. And we've written those all day long, and they're great policies.
0: I'm a buyer. <laughs> we are buyers. I'm just saying, I, for me, I'm just saying I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a buyer. I don't care what the ratio is. Unless yeah. it's too thin, then I'm not interested. But And why is that? So, <clears throat>
1: why is it that you would rather have an 80% base policy than just you know, maybe a, on a 30 year old and 80%, you know, PUA policy.
0: Is that a question? Yeah. Why Perfect. would you? Well, here, here's the answer. Um, if you look at the base, the whole life policy is what we're calling the baseball. It is a whole life policy. Um, <clears throat> and it's just the base. When you construct the PUA and you have other riders on there, it's turned, but it's, it's just a whole life policy is what it is. So if I'm paying 80%, and Let me use round numbers for me. If I'm going to mm-hmm. pay a $10,000 premium in this example, it would be an $8,000 base. Okay. So we know that in whole life insurance, or most of us know that, um, or you'll quickly uh, find out, that there's very little to no cash value in the first two years of all whole life insurance. Okay. And, you know, we've talked about that many times. The life insurance company waiting the cost of that policy in the first two years. And, yes, it actually does cost a life insurance company money to put that policy on the books. And, no, the agent doesn't get all that commission. Sorry, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman. You, you're just misleading your people. So stop it. Um, but, yes, the agents are paid. Okay, my point here is that whole life policy, a whole life insurance policy, the cash value – even though there's very little in the first two years, must equal the face amount at age 100. Okay, so let's say I'm paying this $10,000 premium, and I'm 32 years old. Uh, is that what you said? 32? I said. Or, I think I said 20s, but yeah. okay, it doesn't matter, 20 or 30s. However old yeah. I am, but well, I'm going for the the idea of how much death benefit that that would produce. Maybe 300,000. Maybe 250,000. Let's say 250,000. Yeah. <clears> okay. So here I'm paying eighty uh, percent of the ten thousand dollar premium, eight thousand to the base. That eight thousand uh, premium dollar, I know in one hundred and twenty years, and I'm not going to be here. But that's the way the policy is constructed. There's going to be a two hundred fifty thousand dollar minimum face amount. Oh, I'm not impressed, James, paying eight thousand dollars over all that time period. Yeah, okay, I'm not either. However, this is a dividend paying whole life insurance policy issued by a mutual company. They pay dividends. That dividend buys additional death benefit. So if I start out in my 30s at a $250,000 policy, it's going to wind up to be a a million, five, a million, eight, $2 million policy, face amount. Oh, and the cash value must equal the face amount of age 120. Okay, so there's some context, but let me give you some more context. And just keep that idea, the cash value must equal the face amount at age 120, okay? Now, we compare that to the PUA. If I pay a $10,000 or an $8,000 mm-hmm. premium to the PUA, now we already know that that's going to buy between $8,000 and uh, roughly $24,000 in death benefit, okay, between now and 120 years of age, that cash value in the PUA must equal that face amount. It's only going to go up two, one and a half, one and a half, two or three times. Therefore, it is going to have a smaller dividend paid comparatively. So if you look at, if I'm paying a $10,000 premium, that's the an example. And 8000 is to the base and 2000 is to the PUA. Now you know I'm going to have less liquidity in the first two years. All of the liquidity comes from the PUA premium. So on a $10,000 policy, 2,000 going to the PUA, that's my liquidity in the first two years roughly. 2,000 first year, 4,000 second year. Third year though <coughs> and beyond, excuse me, the base policy has cash value. All right? <clears throat> Every year it increases. And my point here is, yes, I know I'm sacrificing early liquidity, Mm -hmm. but I also know I'm going to have greater, larger dividends throughout the next 60 years. If I'm 20 or 30, I may not live to 120, but I have a pretty good chance of living to 80 and 90. And, oh, James, why why do you need death benefit? Why do you need life insurance then? Because... Um, I I love my people and I'm going to leave them a net death benefit but when I retire or when I move into passive income time I want income. And pray tell where is that going to come from? It's going to come from these life insurance policies. And so if they're paying a dividend and they will be my whole entire life I want a pretty dang large dividend when I'm 75, 80, or 90. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to have a larger dividend compared if I pay a higher base premium. And I talk about this many over and over and over that the greater the PUA, you know, the more PUA premium I have. This eighty percent PUA, twenty percent base in this example that we're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, that's the flexibility too is in the PUA, and it's very limited, right? All across all companies, the PUA, the ability to go up and down in premium and catch up and all of that is very limited. Uh, with with all the companies i mean some are a little bit better than others but whenever i start exercising that ability to move up and down in premium Mm -hmm. and you know we're going to the future is unknown you know i'm gonna have to go up in premium or down in premium i have i have done that i've reduced my premiums to the minimum pua premium and then raised it right back up. the more i do that all right the higher the probability of a mech in the future. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it decreases the stability. All right. So, and I'm yeah. just throwing that in there. And it's, you can't really see this stuff on a life insurance illustration, but experience in, over the last 19 years for me personally and uh, with all the clients that, that we have the privilege of working with, I'm telling you that a higher base premium gives you more stability. And then it goes back to your very point. It depends. How should a policy be struck? It depends on you, your duration, how long you're going to pay a premium, all of those factors, what your current financial position is. You know, this, oh, James, I just want a policy. Can I pay 5,000? Can I pay 10,000? Yes, you can, but should you? Hmm. Anyway, does that answer your question though?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I think one thing I wanted to to ask you and add on to that as well, uh, which policy can you pay more premiums into over a longer period of time? The base. The higher base policy, the right? Okay, so which one's going to end up with more cash value and death benefit? The base. So what are we here for? When, when, when people... Like when I talk to people, I, I ask them like, okay, so you're buying this policy. What are you buying it for? Are you buying it for death benefits? Almost every one of you guys tells me, no, <laughs> I'm buying it for the cash values. Okay. So if man's telling you, you have more cash value and death benefit over the lifetime of your policy with the higher base premium policy, isn't that what we're all here for? I get the liquidity is smaller, especially in the early years, but. I mean, which is important. I don't want yeah, to say the validity is not important. <clears throat> but not, that's not saying that we design our policies with 80% base because we don't. But... Uh, the, That's the, whole buyer, concept, the whole thought concept the whole thought concept though behind all of it right is that a high base premium is not a bad thing No, it can be a great thing depending on the policy I've seen uh, all base policies you know 15 years out and it's like you know a client will come to us and like hey do we want to you know go ahead and you know exchange that or do you know we want to go ahead and surrender this policy no it's 15 years it's a, it's a well built whole life policy maybe the only problem with the policy is you're taking the dividends as actual cash rather than having it reinvested in Or reducing the, PUA, the premium. Or reducing the premium. <clears> and <throat> you should change that portion of it. But, I mean, most of those old policies, I mean, it depends the company, it depends, you know, how it was built and everything like that, what riders are on it. Yeah. There may be some riders you want to drop off. But most of those older policies are fantastic base policies.
0: Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, want to mention uh, life insurance companies' names, but a couple of big ones uh-huh. that have demutualized in the past. You know, they still have policies on the books that still pay dividends, and they're screaming. You know, now I'm not talking about some of these newer companies that have been demutualized and taken over by these Canadian hedge fund companies. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about some of the older companies that are demutualized, you know, in the uh, 80s when all the uh, life insurance companies forgot their heritage, right? Mm. And it's like, oh, no, we want to be a financial services company to all individuals. Okay, I digress. Um, So... Uh, two, though, let me say this that it's uh, easy to build a life insurance policy with a, a, an ordinately high or a PUA premium that's too high. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can gin up a higher internal rate of return, ROR, rate of return, or an IRR, mm-hmm. internal rate of return. And we had this conversation not earlier this week but we have them regularly and and it was a great point that uh, Jake's like well yeah let's say that one ends up uh, you know 4.75% rate of return and the other one only produces a 4.3% rate of return well the 4.75% rate of return is on pennies yeah. You know, pennies. Little bitty old skinny
1: amount. I paid a premium for seven years and then stopped paying premiums. Yeah. It's like, congratulations on that super high rate of return on $100,000. <laughs> it's like, <Right>. good job.
0: <laughs> now, now, if you want to do that again, you got to buy another one and go through your underwriting again. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Compared to, you know, one that earns, I think I said four four 4.3 or whatever. Yeah. On volumes of money. Okay. Yeah. yeah you, you think I'm going to squabble over 4. no uh, no because at the end of the day um <clears throat> life insurance company is going to do what it does And <laughs> you can't control that other than you paying the premium being on a spanker that's yeah. it it's uh all that capital you know it's like yeah i'm going to earn 4.75 on 100 grand over the next 10 years yeah or i'm going to earn 4.3 on 200 grand or a hundred grand that I can continue paying beyond the tenth year. Yeah, and all that capital. Now wait, I all that capital I have access to. You're going to give me access to a hundred thousand compared to two hundred thousand. Yeah, right. Like that's it. Yeah, and then then I'll go chase rates of returns. You know, on with the life insurance company money because I'm collateralizing the cash value. It's just, it's a great point though. Yeah, yeah, and- you can get a higher rate of return on on pennies.
1: People make games out of it, though. They really do. And th- that's... Uh, <laughs> I said I wasn't going <laughs> to beat up on people too much. But but th- th- that's something that we see out there, right? Is, you know, people kind of focused on rates of return. And, you know, Nelson said this was not about rates of return, right? You know, if we're, we're really looking at these policies, do we want the highest rate of return or do we want the highest volume of cash value increase per year? Uh, I want the highest cash value volume increase per year. Yeah, but I don't want that with... Uh, a
0: dink rate of return. I want that with a legitimate
1: rate of return. Absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, in my opinion, right, when we're talking about like, you know, long term with these policies Mm because we got to think long range on this. This is one of Nelson's tenets is thinking long range. Right. Uh, We think long range. Okay. So, the 4.75, right. Let's say it is, you know, I, I don't even bring policy ratios or anything like that into it but let's just say you know policy a is the four point75 but you know that 4 point75 you're only paying premiums maybe let's let's even give them 20 years worth of paying premiums uh, right? yeah
0: you bet, They're you're not being gonna be you're generous I know. most of them are seven or ten or 14 years at best
1: I'm being super generous is yeah. this is my dad's point now very generous here and let's say the the four point you know what was it the four point three or what would yeah, you say
0: four point three is
1: the four point three you know, you could pay that premium for 40 years. Okay, so you take those two side by side. Now that 4.75, if you wanna be able to pay that premium for 40 years, what do you have to do? Just like my dad said, you know, a few minutes ago, what do you gotta do? You gotta go buy another policy at that point in time to be able to continue paying that high premiums. What period of time are you entering into, right? At that, you start another policy over again, that loss of liquidity immediately is hitting. It's like, congratulations, you have two 4.75 policies, but if you compare the volume of those policies to the volume of the other policy, maybe you've paid the exact same premiums over that long time period, but you're still going to have more cash value on the 4.3 policy. Well, why is that? Well, because now we're talking about volume and starting dates of these policies. So you're in 4.75 on a policy, but you started it 20 years after the first policy that's earning 4.3. So when you're talking about total volume of cash value, like way out in the future, uh, you know, 40 years out in the future, uh, guess what? The 4.3 is going to look better, even if he's paid the same premiums. It's like starting policies over and over and over every seven years, every 10 years, every, you know, 15 years. (laughs) I don't care if the rate of return is higher on that. uh, It's not going to look as good as a policy that's built properly and allows you to think long range and pay premiums long range. So you go back into that. Um, you know, discussion about you know, you know, how big the base is or how big the base should be. It's like you know, if you're talking to you know an advisor, you're talking to somebody from NNI and they're you know showing you a policy where you can pay premiums for forty years, and you're talking to somebody else who's showing you a policy that can pay premiums for seven years, and that person's like, well, look at the rate of return. Just understand that that's a game that they're playing. Like at the end of the day, they're just trying to get you to say yes and sign the contract. Well, they get paid and the uh, life insurance company gets paid and what two out of three ain't bad is is that that what the the old adage goes
0: yeah but then to the consumer the prospective client you know they get to feel a little bit better because now they don't have to look Mm. at 40 years of you know illustrated premium yeah not knowing that like if they're looking at one that's Mm. paid for seven years the other that's 40 years and maybe not knowing or realizing or being told about the non-forfeiture options of a life insurance policy. Mm. I can make a policy a 7 pay, a 5 pay, a 10 pay, a 15 pay, a 20 pay, a 25 pay and I can make that permanent or I can make that temporary if I know what I'm doing and we know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So my point is that yeah, the, the agent, the advisor gets paid, the consumer, the prospective client, he gets to breathe easy I don't have to, you know, feel obligated to this forty years of premium payments. Um, yeah, so, but there's absolutely a, a game being played, and I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to beat anybody up, but um, I'm talking about concepts. But I'll get a little personal here. You know, the person that wants to squabble over three bips or four and a half bips is the same individual. That's paying twenty percent in interest, fourteen percent on helocs, and not even practicing honest banking with their own debt, you know. Because or or they're the real mm-hmm. estate investor that has no money, the cheap real estate investor. And listen, Ooh. I don't Ooh. I don't want to go off on. <laughs> I'm talking about constant. So I'm really, really getting to thinking. Yeah. Okay. and I, I love real estate. I love my real estate clients. I love I love every I just love peace and chicken grease here. That's right. Okay, but don't 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 go paying all these third party lenders all kinds of money abdicating your responsibility for of control and the banking function and then squabble over a point or two a tenth of a percent a twentieth hmm. of a percent because it doesn't work and then the idea you know math is math is math there's no question about that and let me tell you um, or let me encourage you you're not going to outmath a life insurance company. <laughs> You're not going to outmath Wall Street. Yeah. You're not going to do it. Anyway,
1: so. I, we kind of talked about that earlier this week, and <laughs> I had said, I and I think you agreed with me, maybe you want to expand on this a little bit more, but we were talking about, you know, why rate of return has become such a big thing in the financial industry, right? Uh, Everyone uses rate of return, that's what they talk about, you know, IRR rate of return, whatever they want to, you know, whatever rate of return they're wanting to talk about, right? Um, Why is it, is it, is it such a big thing in that financial services industry? And i and I think we discussed, and we like kind of settled on it that it was the abdication of thought. You don't, if you see the higher number here, and you know your financial advisor is like, "Well, you can earn, you know, this here, this you know, four point seven five here. You're only going to put on, you know, four point three over here." It's like you don't have to think anymore. It's yeah, but like what's perfect.
0: the risk? Like it's almost like a, it's yeah. like a red herring. But what's the risk? You know, which is just in the conversation. I, no, I agree with you. It is. Yeah, it's an abdication of responsibility. I don't have to be responsible for my money. I don't have to be responsible. I mean, to the point where I have to educate myself, I've got to spend a little time reading. I've got to spend some time paying attention. And I may not want to, you know, I may want to read other stuff. Um, But abdicating your responsibility of taking control, just being responsible of your own money, taking control of your own. financial activities. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that's part of it. Yeah. I, and I, I, Nelson, he wrote a
1: great chapter and it's in the back of his second book. Um, and I, I agree. I think everybody should read that. It's uh, out of Egypt and on to Babylon okay. or out of Babylon and out of Egypt and out of into Babylon. Um, and the whole thing is about, you know, essentially f- slavery and humans And their constant need to enslave themselves to whatever it happens to be, whether it's, you know, the financial services industry or the government, which is kind of what Nelson was getting at right there. Um, Just drawing those parallels between, you know, what the people said, you know, the Israelites said they wanted a king because everyone else had a king. So they got a king. Congratulations, you have a king. Uh, and, And then what? You know, you go into Egypt and you have your master's and then you it just, it's a continuous cycle of abdicating that personal responsibility of abdicating your thought and giving it to somebody with higher authority. And these people aren't any smarter than you are. Do you think Joe Biden's smarter than most of our listeners? No. Uh, if we talk about human intelligence just as a spectrum, right, the smartest man and the dumbest man, there's not a huge gigantic difference there um, i th- there is a difference so can be, but if, if we think cosmically right on god scale right um, we're thinking on, i mean i get it. they're both human we're, we're thinking on like you know omnipotent scale right you know the smartest man and the dumbest man on the scale of omnipotence is absolute there's almost no difference um it, so, so it just I seems a bit of a
0: stretch for me i mean okay. i've seen some real dumb people and then but now i get it I my, get, my I question get it. is who do
1: you want controlling your life? The smartest man in the world, the dumbest man in the world, doesn't even matter. Do you want anyone controlling your life? Yeah. No. Do you trust other people to run your life the way you should run your life? No, absolutely not. And that, I think that was Nelson's point in the book, in, you know, out of Egypt and on to Babylon, is just this, this consistent abdication of responsibility and thought. And you see that in the rate of return arguments. You see that in almost every argument out there. It's just like, I don't need to think anymore. I need to advocate that responsibility. And, and don't get me wrong. It's okay to trust an advisor or trust somebody to do something you know you don't have the time to do or you don't want to do. That can be okay. But you have to, what would you say, um, choose wisely. You can't choose haphazardly and you shouldn't just choose the the shiniest object out there, right? Uh, if, if you're going to, you know, you know, take hold of your personal finances, which I think you should, you should do so with the infinite banking concept. Now you need to partner with a smart advisor, because you can't do that yourself. You just can't is the average public person in the public, you can't just go buy a policy an IBC policy. That's not how that works. You got to go to the Nelson Nash Institute, uh, specifically to the practitioner finder. And I'll tell you, if you're watching some other person on YouTube that's a celebrity, you know, whatever, uh, influencer, I think is what they're called. Um, you're watching those people and they're talking about the infinite banking concept and you like them. And you're like, maybe I want to do business with this person. Do me a favor, go type their name into the practitioner finder uh, at the Nelson Nash Institute. Just go to Google Nelson Nash Institute pull up the homepage, go to the practitioner finder. It's one of the bars up there and go type that person's name in there. If they're not there, they're not doing IBC. The infinite banking concept is specifically done through practitioners who are licensed and uh, uh, certified through the Nelson Nash Institute. So just do me that favor because if they're not there, that was another thing I really wanted to talk about today and I don't know if wait, we, wait, let me, time let me,
0: yeah, we have Tom. <clears throat> let me say that You know, if you want a competent, educated uh, practitioner, just go to com or call my office, 817-790-0405. No disparagement to the community of the Nelson Nash Institute. I dearly love them. I have a special place in my heart for them. Very active Mm. uh, with the Nelson Nash Institute. Been there uh, since day one, 2013. Um, However... It's like that's what we do all day long, daylight to dark, right here, twenty miles south of Fort Worth, Texas, is we uh, help our clients and prospective clients become their own banker with the proper, thorough foundation and building of policies or a policy for our clients' custom. It's like it's handmade. You know, every policy cannot look like every other policy, and and Jake's right if. You know, there's because we don't promote. You know, I don't. We don't put money behind uh, this podcast at all. Um, it's attraction rather than promotion. I'm a capitalist. I might, I might start start spending some ad revenue, tick some of those uh, people off on the internet. That you know, because you type <laughs> in Infinite Banking or the Nelson Nash Institute, and five advertisements come up before you get down to the authorized. You know, uh, hmm. Nelson Nash Institute, and it's the Infinite Banking org. That's where it is. Yes. Okay. So, or you could just go to bankwithlife.com, push the button on the website that says become a client, share a little information with us, and we'll uh, meet you where you're at, no matter where you're at financially a little, a lot, complex, complicated, simple, compound, doesn't matter. I'm talking about your finances. Uh, we can, we can, I'm just bold enough to say that we can improve your situation. All right. You're bold, but you're right. So, And that's so, an excellent plug, by the I way. I didn't mean to throw you off, but well, if we're sending people somewhere, you might as well give them the shortcut to success. Absolutely. Right? Come to
1: us. Yeah, come no, on, absolutely. I, I want to talk to you guys. I really do. Right. Um, He's
0: waiting by the phone. I'm waiting right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait. Oh, here, here comes a call. I'm kidding. Oh. First caller. <laughs> so Jake and I went a little long in this episode, so we cut it into two parts. We're going to end part one here, pick up where we left off in part two. Thanks for listening.